On Monday morning, when Michelle introduced the staff here in the hall, she talked about the beautiful reciprocity between giving and receiving. And she quoted the Buddha when he said that there are two kinds of rare and precious beings in this world, one who extends kindness and one who receives it, or one who is generous and one who is, feels gratitude. So I'd like to speak about these qualities, these very beautiful and nourishing qualities of heart and mind this evening, mostly about generosity, but also a bit about gratitude. These are qualities that are recognized in every spiritual tradition, as we know. And they're a very significant part of the foundation for our practice, the foundation for the development of wisdom and compassion. There's a proverb that says, he who passes his day, he who allows his day to pass by without practicing generosity and appreciating life's pleasures is like a blacksmith's bellows. He breathes but does not live. So I'd like to start this evening by acknowledging and expressing my appreciation, my gratitude for what you're all doing here, for this journey that you've embarked on. It's so rare, it's so unusual in this world And I know that it takes a tremendous amount of effort simply to get yourself here, let alone to continue to stay on, to do this work, this practice. Truly, I mean it when I say thank you for doing it. In a very real way, your practice supports mine. Our practice supports each other. And I'm sure that you will feel this if you haven't already as these weeks go by. So in the days and weeks prior to the retreat starting, as I was thinking about what I wanted to speak about for a first talk, my first talk on this retreat, I thought that I would follow in the footsteps of the Buddha in speaking about generosity. It's mentioned often in the texts that before the Buddha taught meditation, he taught generosity, the practice of generosity. And he taught this before teaching about ethical conduct or morality. So it was generosity and then ethical conduct And then there was a a foundation, a base, for the practice of meditation. And as I was thinking about this, of course, it became really apparent that none of these areas are really separate. In fact, the guidelines for ethical conduct, the precepts, are discussed or referred to in the Anguttara Nikaya as the five greatest gifts we can give. It says that they're valued by noble men and women throughout time, that these are gifts whose value was known in the past, is known in the present, and will continue to be known in the future. That in our observing and upholding of the precepts, we're giving the tremendous gift of safety, of fearlessness, and ease to all beings who are in our presence. We're giving our love and our care. So this practice of sila is a significant aspect of the practice of generosity 
or dana. Also, the practice of generosity has a very important purifying capacity. It helps us to clear the mind and heart. It makes the heart and mind ready for meditative insight and for progress on this path. And for each of us, although our individual goals or motivations for practice might appear different on the surface, underneath they really all boil down to the same thing, to the lessening and ultimately the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. So cultivating and practicing generosity supports this core goal very directly. Generosity itself is a greater force than that of greed and hatred. So when we give, either materially or of ourselves, we're cultivating kindness, selflessness, compassion, and wisdom. These factors are strengthening, and the forces of attachment and aversion are weakening. Also, when we make it a practice to give, we're developing a mind that's agile, that's able to let go, able to be fluid in that way, rather than a mind that's fixed and rigid. And that kind of a fluid, agile mind is very beneficial in our meditation practice as we work to free ourselves from delusion. The Buddha knew very well the potential and the power of generosity. And he made the statement that's so often quoted, saying that if only... If people only knew the power of generosity as he did, they wouldn't let a single meal pass by without sharing some of it. As I was reflecting on that statement, that quote, I was reminded of this very sweet memory that I have of a time spent visiting with Deepama, who you'll hear more about tomorrow, actually. Uh, there'll be the, a taped talk played about her. But I was with some friends, Joseph and Sharon included, a small group of us, and we were in Bodhgaya, and Deepama was with us. And at this particular time, we were at um, a res- some kind of place, it's hard to call it a restaurant, <laughs> place where food was being served. <laughs> kind of an open-air, long table. I remember sitting at this long table. And we we had all ordered some food, and we were waiting for our food, and Deepama received hers first. And she was sitting across the table from me. And when she received her food, she just immediately started taking the food in her hands and feeding it to us. And I actually have a wonderful photo of her reaching across the table, putting food in my mouth, And I remember being so struck with it because she was so happy. And also, she's so tiny that it felt like her whole hand was going to go in my mouth. (laughs) So the relevance of generosity to our practice is enormous. Quite naturally, in giving, there's a selfless quality where we have another in mind, the recipient, rather than ourselves. And when we give something really freely, there's an unconditional aspect to it. There's just the giving. There's no one to try to hold on to anything. Just that letting go. Just that place of connection and sharing. A wonderful thing to remember about this is that we can choose at any point to be generous. 
And we practice generosity not because of some moral imperative, but because we want to be free, because we want to develop those qualities in the mind of ease and connection and letting go. Over time, we really learn to appreciate that feeling of letting go, even if it doesn't come so easily at first. It's as though we acquire a taste for it. We're so conditioned. Our conditioning runs so deeply to hold on to what we have, to acquire, to gain, to accumulate, to possess. But as our understanding deepens, we know more and more the suffering that's associated with clinging. And we begin to taste that sweetness of letting go, that sweet freedom in the heart. In the Buddhist teachings about generosity, it's said that the giver ideally should be delighted before, during, and after the giving. So before giving, we can be happy as we anticipate making an offering, having that opportunity to give. And while giving, we experience the joy of knowing that we're fulfilling a need in someone else. After giving, there's the satisfaction of having done a good deed, in a way basking in the wholesomeness of that action. I found this lovely quotation by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. He said, think of giving not as a duty, but as a privilege. And I think that when we begin to experience that happiness before, during, and after giving, we really come to understand the true privilege that generosity is. In the suttas, this is elaborated on even further. It's said that it is not even possible to estimate the amount of merit or wholesome beneficial energy that accrues when an offering is endowed with six particular characteristics. The first three characteristics are those that I just mentioned the happiness of the giver before, during, and after giving. It's that nobility of thought without a trace of greed. It makes a gift truly great. The second three characteristics reside with the receiver, the recipient. If that person is also free from greed, hatred, and delusion or even if they're working toward the elimination of these unwholesome states, then the merit from that act of generosity is said to be as immeasurable as the waters of the ocean. But it's not so common to have those six characteristics in place. And even when one of them is strong, And we experience that. It's so powerful, whether we're experiencing it in ourselves or from another. I have a dear friend who's been a tremendous source of inspiration to me in this way around generosity. She's one of those rare beings that it seems um, generosity just comes very easily to. And it's really beautiful to behold, to witness. And I've been on the receiving end of it over the nearly 20 years of our friendship. Many times she's housed me, you know, and fed me and taken care of me in that material way, very generously. But also, the way that she gives of herself is quite striking, An example of this is that there have been times in our friendship when we've made plans to do things together, and we've done lots of different things together, traveling and 
camping and hiking and different kinds of trips and sharing time together. But at times, it's happened that we've made a plan, and then for some reason things have changed in my life, and I've had to change the plan, Um, cancel, really. And I've been quite struck with the way that she holds that, that she really has this ability to let go of her own disappointment that it might not be happening and really just shift into a true appreciation that I'm doing what I need to do to take care of myself. It's as though she and I are not separate. So if I'm happy, she's happy. It's an amazing quality. It makes it really safe to be with her, to be a friend to her. And that example, I think, is not so different than the quality of mudita, one of the Brahma-viharas, that quality of the heart that rejoices in the happiness of another. It's the ability to shift the focus from oneself to another and to appreciate, truly, their happiness, their well-being, even before one's own. This is something that parents get to develop and practice quite a lot. It's a generosity of the heart. Often, though, for many of us, generosity doesn't come so easily. Again, that conditioning to accumulate, to hold on, and to take a kind of false refuge in our things runs so deep. But we can take an honest look at where we are with it at any point in our lives and then try it as a practice, being generous. There's a framework that I've heard of in the Buddhist teachings that talks about three different kinds of giving. And all these different kinds are valuable. They're all um, steps in this development of this practice of generosity. So at times I found it a useful model to just understand and look at my own experience of giving in light of these different kinds. So the first kind of giving is called miserly giving. And it's just what it sounds like. We have some wholesome motivation to give, but the root unwholesome forces of greed, hatred, and delusion are still strong enough. They're still exerting their influence enough that we're not giving really wholeheartedly. So we're not really giving the very best of what we have to offer, for example. And we're maybe not really delighting in the giving fully. Instead, maybe we're giving something that doesn't mean very much to us, or we're stingy in our minds and hearts, even if not in the gift itself. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that even on retreat, the way we come to our practice, we might see this from time to time. In those times when maybe we're practicing kind of half-heartedly, not fully giving ourselves to it. It's funny sometimes on a retreat how we work so hard to get here. You know, we have that very wholesome motivation and it takes so much. And we get ourselves here and then we feel like, oh, what have I done? You know, at least at moments I've had this experience. I don't know about you. But then it's kind of like I'm just plodding through. You know, and I forget that it's actually this amazing thing that I'm here, that I have this opportunity. So I would invite you to look at that at times in your practice, to just check in and see how are you giving yourself to the practice at any point, and then see if you can hold it as a practice of generosity to give yourself more fully and perhaps even delight in that. 
so miserly giving. The second kind of giving is called friendly giving. In this case, there's more ease in giving. We give more readily and freely. The forces of attachment and ill will have loosened their hold significantly. And there's much more of a connection to what we're doing. There's a real simplicity to this kind of giving. As I was thinking about this, I thought of an example, a recent example from my own experience, a very basic example. But earlier this year, in the summertime, I was helping to teach a retreat. And on this retreat was a friend. I think it was her first retreat. And during the retreat, well, the background is, I, have, I had this dress in my closet that I really liked and I had for a, a long time, but I actually rarely wore. And I'd thought about giving it away, but I couldn't quite get myself to do it. You know, I, I just was kind of holding on to it because I liked it. And at some point in this retreat, <clears throat> I saw that friend and I just imagined her in that dress. It wasn't like I was thinking about the dress and then put it on her. <laughs> But I just suddenly saw her in that dress, and I thought, oh, I could give it to her when the retreat's over. And that's what I did. And so it made me happy thinking about giving it to her. And then giving it to her, it was really a happy thing. I gave it kind of quietly where I just left it for her with a note. But it made me really happy to do it. And just recently, she told me that it's become one of her favorite things to wear and that she wears it a lot and really likes it. And I felt so happy knowing it. And I realized that just in those, this short period of time of thinking about giving it and giving it and then knowing that she's enjoying it, there has been so much more happiness for me than having it in my closet. You know, that was nothing. So it's a simple example, but, you know, it's a taste of that delight that we can have before, during, and after giving. The third kind of giving is called noble or kingly or queenly giving. And this is a pretty highly developed form of generosity where we give the very best that we have to offer. I'd like to tell you a story from the suttas. It's about a man who was called Ekasatika. And those words mean one shawl. And he was called that because he was a very, very poor man. And he was married. So he and his wife both lived in a very simple way. They had very little that they could call their own. They were middle-aged couple. And between them, they had a shawl that they shared. Otherwise, their clothing was very, very minimal. The man had a kind of trousers made out of one cloth that you wrap around your lower body, and his upper body was bare. And the woman had a very simple sari that she would wear. And this couple was very, very devoted. They lived in the time of the Buddha, and they were very devoted to the Buddha. And they had the opportunity to actually go and listen to the Buddha give discourses, teachings. So they had to take turns and go individually to hear the Buddha because they had only the one shawl. And when they went to be in the presence of the Buddha, they couldn't be dressed so um, scarcely. They had to cover up. So they shared. One would go one night and wear the shawl and the next would go the next time and wear the shawl. And one day, the Buddha was giving a talk on generosity. And it was a very, very inspiring talk where he emphasized that generosity was the base of the spiritual practice, the foundation. And it was the husband's turn to be at the talk 
So he was wearing the shawl, and he was listening to this talk. And as he listened, he felt so touched by it, so moved and inspired. And he thought, I want to give something to the Buddha. But what do I have to give? I don't have anything to give. You know, I have very, very little in my life. And then he thought, oh, I have this shawl. I could give this shawl. And then he thought, oh, no, I can't give the shawl because if I give it, I won't ever be able to come back and hear his teachings. And then he thought, oh, but I really want to give. And the, the urge, the generous urge to give, to be generous, arose in his heart so strongly And he felt really moved, and he thought, I'm going to give the shawl. And then he thought, oh, what about my wife? She won't ever be able to come back, so I can't do it. Neither of us will ever be able to come. And so it went back and forth and back and forth, this struggle inside. It really became a kind of a battle inside. And at some point, this inner battle was over. And he knew that he had to give the shawl, that he wanted to give it. And he was so happy when he had that moment of realizing that he could give it, that he stood up and shouted, I won, I won. (laughs) And it just so happened that in the crowd that evening was a king, a very important king in the area, King Kosala. And when he heard the poor man yelling, I won, he felt kind of threatened. And he jumped up and brandished a sword at the man and said, What? What have you won? And the man said, It's okay, not your kingdom, not your kingdom. (laughs) And he explained to King Kosala how he had defeated his own greed. And he told him the story of what he'd been thinking and how he had come to terms with it and decided to give. And as the king listened to this story, he felt so moved and inspired. And he thought, I am great, but I am not so great as this simple man. So in turn, he was inspired to be generous. So he gave the man and his wife a great big pile of gold. and a fine new house, and many shawls to wear. (laughs) What I like best about that story is the depiction of that internal struggle. I don't know if you've ever felt it, but I've felt it on occasion in my life. When I'm thinking about giving... And then I think, oh, no, I can't. And then I want to, and then, oh, no, I'm not sure. And that movement back and forth, that struggle. And then his happiness, his great happiness in winning the battle and in feeling that joy in being able to let go, being able to give. It actually reminds me of this game that It's kind of a game. It was a gift circle kind of game that I had been a part of for a few years running. Many years ago, here at IMS, we did it at Christmas time. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. I'll try to give you a brief summary. Everyone comes to the circle with a gift to give, and it's suggested that you give something that's already um, perhaps a little bit of a stretch to give, so something meaningful for you, maybe something that you already have yourself and that you're, you're going to give. And it, you bring your gift wrapped up. So the way the circle begins is everyone takes a number. So you all have numbers. And number one, go, all the gifts are in the center of the circle. Number one goes first and gets to choose a gift. So number one takes the gift, unwraps it, everybody watches. Whoever gave the gift might explain the significance of it, talk about it person appreciates the gift. Then when it's number two's turn, they have the choice of taking a gift from the circle or taking number one's gift. (laughs) So you get the picture. As the circle goes on, you really get to practice letting go, (laughs) 
And, you know, if this is approached with the right frame of mind, it can be really interesting and kind of fun where you get to see that movement of attachment, you know, and thinking, oh, now I'm number 10. I can choose from, you know, all, and maybe I'll get the thing I really want. But actually there's a number 11, you know, look out. (laughs) You might not get to keep it. Some people actually didn't like that game (laughs) very much, and it it got discontinued after a few years. (laughs) But I actually used to enjoy it. It it just was a fun um, kind of witnessing, you know, of that process. And actually that game isn't really so different than our lives. We acquire and we lose. We have the opportunity to let go or even to give very wholeheartedly. And that act of giving, when we can, has tremendous transformational powers. Another story about how our hearts can shift from closed to open through giving is something that I, again, witnessed here at IMS just a couple of years ago. This was um, a couple summers ago, and in the summertime, um, I have a favorite place where I like to spend as much time as possible, and that is at a lake nearby, because I really, really love to swim. So in the summertime, when the weather's right, I take my lunch uh, from IMS, and then I go to the lake. And on that summer, I was doing some work that required a lot of reading. And so I would take my reading to the lake, and I would get to the lake, swim, get out of the lake, eat my lunch, and then read at the lake in the afternoon. So I kind of make the lake beach my office. (laughs) So I was there in my office one afternoon, and there were some other IMS staff people at the lake, and it was just one of those lovely summer days. Really, really beautiful. So we were commenting on what a beautiful day it was. And being a self-confessed greedy type, I extended my comments about what a nice day it was by saying, well, you know what would be even better? You know, I'm going to be here for the afternoon. It would be even better if I had like a cup of chai and a brownie. Then, you know, it would be perfect. I was just, you know, rambling. Um, I wasn't asking for it. And so I forgot about it, and they left after some time. And I was there for maybe another half hour or so. And in, after the lunch hour, a lot of people leave, so I was there pretty much by myself. And at some point, I was just absorbed in the reading I heard this voice on the road. I heard a car, but I didn't think about it. And then I heard this voice say, hey, lady. And I turned around, and it was the two staff people that I'd been with. And they were the woman was holding her arm out the car window, and she had in her hand a cup. And it was a cup of chai. And then she had a brownie. (laughs) And she was so happy. They had just gotten inspired to see if they could go get that for me. And if you know this area at all, (laughs) you know that it's actually an amazing feat to pull off, short of coming back to IMS and making it yourself, to find such a thing in a nearby town. But they did. They went to a a town nearby, to this country store, and they just looked, and it happened. I don't think I'd ever seen it before or after, (laughs) But there was chai tea there, and there was a brownie, and they bought it and brought it back to me. And, I mean, it was sweet to receive the the brownie and the chai, but what was really sweet was that delight that they were taking in doing it. They were just so tickled that they'd found it. And then they came back, and they were so happy, and it was so contagious. And then it happened that that event sparked a kind of series of events that these two staff people initiated here at IMS. It went on for a few days. It was so beautiful to witness. 
first they um, thought of someone here, someone else on staff who'd been having a hard time. So they went out and bought her flowers, and they left her flowers anonymously. And that made them feel really happy again. And they, they just kind of got into it, you know. <laughs> and so then they put up a sign in the staff um, dining room where people could sign up. They made a kind of salon one afternoon where they were offering to wash people's feet and give them foot rubs, people on staff. It was the sweetest thing. So several people signed up and went to this salon. And I only found out much later when I talked to the woman, the one who had handed me the chai and then been a part of this, that this whole um, spree of generosity had been very healing for her, that she had continued with it because she felt the transformation that happened that very first afternoon with the chai and the brownie. She had actually been struggling in a very hard place, kind of depressed and very contracted, kind of tight. And that afternoon, she saw how it could change through giving, giving. And so she continued to give for a while. It was such a lovely thing. What if we all did that? What a different world this would be. What if we gave to others as a regular part of our day? A couple of years ago around the holidays, I heard about this thing on the Internet. Maybe some of you know about it. I might not have it exactly right, but there was, I didn't see it myself. But there was something about some list on Amazon.com who sells books where people could put down like what books they were interested in. And then strangers were going in there and looking at this and sending people they didn't know books. They were buying them for them and sending these people they didn't know these gifts. And I thought, that is so nice. I was really touched by it. (laughs) But rather naively, I didn't think about... The friend pointed this out to me, the tremendous financial gain to Amazon.com that it wasn't entirely altruistic on their part to come up with the idea. But still, I thought it was a beautiful thing that people did it, that people enjoyed doing it. Reflecting on our own generosity, remembering times when we've been generous, is actually suggested in the teachings as a way to uplift the heart and to put the mind in a state conducive to practice. And I think this is something that many of us would benefit from. I think it's something that's really hard for us to do, that we're not so practiced in this culture with thinking about and reflecting on our goodness, on things that we've done that are beneficial or kind, that so often it's easy for us to see our flaws and to remember things that we've done that maybe we wish we hadn't and to feel remorse. But to actually consciously bring to mind the goodness, the times that we've been generous, is a very useful thing. So I invite you to try that from time to time and see, see if you can notice what that does in your heart, in your mind. As I was um, working on this talk, I actually got to experience that myself. As I was reading about that as a practice, I thought maybe I'd try it. Sometimes for me, writing a talk can be a challenging thing. But the beauty about working on a Dharma talk is inevitably you get reminded of what you need to know. So in this talk, at some point, I started reflecting on generosity and on the fact that offering a talk is an act of generosity, that teaching is an act of generosity, that it's really not a job, that it's a practice. It's actually the very same practice that you're doing in a slightly different form. 
So I reflected on my intention, my intention in sharing a talk, the intention to support, the intention to help in some way, to help uplift you perhaps at the end of a long day of practice, to help remind you of what you're here for. And as I did that, as I reflected on that and got in touch again with what was really happening as I sat in front of my computer, it totally shifted. It's like the, the block shifted. Things opened up and began to flow again. And although you will hear us say from time to time up here that your job is showing up, you know, your job is punching in and putting in your time, being as present as you can and punching out, in another way, it's actually more of an act of generosity on your part than it is a job. It's a huge gift that you've given yourselves in coming here. It's a huge gift to dedicate this kind of time to practice. Applying yourselves so fully to being present, to seeing clearly, to deepening your understanding is tremendous giving. And in a way, what we're giving to, in one way, is that very conscious part of ourselves. We're taking care of and nourishing the wholesome qualities in ourselves, and we're abandoning the unwholesome qualities. And this is wise generosity. Generosity associated with wisdom, it said, before, during, and after the act is the highest type of giving. Three examples of wise giving are giving with the clear understanding that according to the karmic law of cause and effect, the generous act will bring beneficial results in the future. Giving while aware that the gift, the recipient, and the giver are all impermanent. And giving with the aim of enhancing one's efforts to become enlightened. So it's important to reflect on our generosity, to make it a very conscious process. And I was really struck with this one piece. In the text, it says that to adorn the mind is actually the highest motivation for giving. And adorning the mind means beautifying the mind by ridding it of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it might be something material that we give. And it might be that we give of ourselves, our presence, our attention, our care. A friend of mine just the other day was telling me about this workshop that she had attended. And the title of the workshop was The Healing Power of Unconditional Presence. And this is what you're giving to yourselves. The Healing Power of Unconditional Presence. It's such a beautiful and powerful gift. You're also offering this gift to each other as you practice here. And as you protect the silence, this sacred space that we're sharing in doing this practice, that's also a tremendous gift to each other and to ourselves. Also, the support of simply doing our practice in the company of others. I know that for myself, when I'm on retreat and also here in this seat, it's tremendously supportive 
to see you all sitting, taking care in the hall, moving around the building and grounds mindfully. It's very supporting. And sometimes when we're yogis and we feel like we're flagging a little bit ourselves, you can feel really held and supported in that energy of the group that continues, that goes on, that does its best, our best. This is the gift of sangha, that gift of support. So please feel free to remind yourselves from time to time of what you're doing, of what you're giving to yourself and to each other in your time here, what you're giving to the world with your practice. So although being on retreat, we're very limited in terms of giving materially. You know, we won't be expecting you to feed each other across the table each meal. There's still so much else that you can give, so many other opportunities. And even as we practice accepting the simplicity of our time here, This is an aspect of generosity. When we accept the simplicity of the accommodations or the meals or just that letting go that we have to do of our uh, normal distractions back at home in order to be here, we're giving on a very deep level. A renunciation of self-interest is said to be the highest form of generosity. And we're doing that when we let go, when we accept the simplicity of our time here. So as we practice letting go of wanting and opening to what we do have, a great appreciation can arise in the heart which is the other beautiful mind state that's so closely linked with generosity, that of gratitude. I was thinking about gratitude and trying to find words to describe it, my experience, and I found it really difficult to describe. The best I could do was that kind of, for me, it's a a real fullness of heart and almost a kind of reverence, where it feels as though there's almost a a bowing to what's being offered or what I'm so touched by. It's a lovely feeling. And we can draw upon it as well for support in our practice. I know at times in my life when I felt contracted or in a difficult place, just bringing in some reflections on what I'm grateful for can help shift things, help the heart to soften, to open. When we remember how much we do have, even in the simplicity of this moment, even in just receiving this next breath, or being touched by the beauty of the natural world around us or being held in this incredibly supportive environment, we settle inside. Contentment arises, and out of that contentment, we're able to continue the practice of letting go, the practice of freeing the heart and the mind on deeper and deeper levels. I'd like to close this evening by reading you a poem. It's by a woman named Alison Luderman. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green rhinoceros as big as she is, 
her cloth doll with the long blonde pigtails, her battered cardboard books swung open on their soggy pages. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, (laughs) a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction, or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes of every simple object an offering. This is me. Here is who I am. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover, while you worry over matters of finance, of relationship, important issues related to getting and spending, having and hoarding. Though you were once that baby, though you are still that world. Let's sit together. May the merit of our practice and of our acts of generosity be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings. Thank you for your presence.